all of the things I say on this podcast will be you know my professional and, and personal opinion, but doesn't necessarily represent the views of Soil Conservation Service or the department that I work for. Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real-life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willie. Our guest today is Kurt Labowry, Area Manager Southern at the Soil Conservation Service. He's also a past member of the International Erosion Control Association Board and recently was awarded recipient of the Changemakers Achievement for Future Women. Hi, Kurt. It has been too long since I've spoken to you. Yeah, g'day and thanks for having me and um, bursting my podca- uh, podcast bubble. I guess I'm a, I'm virgin at this. So, hi, mum. <laughs> yeah, and uh, look, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. And congratulations on your recent achievement uh, with Changemakers. That sounds awesome. Um, so, what's it all about? Like, how does it actually work? Yeah, no worries. Um, look. Fantastic opportunity, I must say, and really grateful for the leadership team um, who sort of has driven this within our business and the greater department. I will, however, probably ask you to hold your congratulations, Chanel, until we actually have some some gender parity in Australia, because that's the real real challenge doing the courses. Step one. Um, so, look, what it's all about is really, um, you know, we have a, a real challenge in Australia that um, we don't have gender parity necessarily in equal pay. So there's a really great YouTube video about that. If you want to understand that, it's called The Lift. Um, and it's about, you know, equal pay for, for both genders, but also representation of women at all levels in business. So um, the the key to all of this is the research shows, and as I'm a, you know, I'm a scientist, shocker, Everything's research based and and science based. I love that. Um, yeah, all the you know top ASX listed companies have really good gender diversity on their boards at all levels in their you know business, and that's what it's about. So Soilcon in particular, um, we closely mirror the construction industry, which has traditionally been very male dominated, um, and we really want to be able to get that gender parity, get that diversity within our group. So, um, you know, gender is part of it, but wider diversity in, you know, reflecting our client types and the people we work for, um, we're going to get better outcomes. We're going to get better ideas. And a lot of it was realising, number one, that problem, but also those unconscious biases and conscious biases at times that are contributing to that problem and helping others to get past those too. So, what was the course like that you did? Um, was it uh, a multi-day course, or, and was it in-house? And did you did you feel that it opened your eyes to some unconscious bias that maybe you uh, hadn't actually noticed that you hadn't been seeing in the past? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a two-day course, and essentially all remote. Um, because people are all over the place, and it is really aimed at sort of um, you know exec and sort of leadership roles. Um, Participants weren't necessarily just in-house, so private, public sector, all over the place, which made it really, really valuable. And I think for me, that was a really great thing to be able to sit in a virtual room full of people who all want the same thing 
they're all aiming for the same thing and they're making that change because it can be a bit daunting to think, how can I solve this problem that's been around for hundreds of years by myself with the small amount of control that I have in a, you know, the greater machine that is your business, whatever that may be. Um, and look, for me, I'd like to think I'm a, a pretty self-aware person. So um, I have managed people for a long time. Um, I've also been on a lot of recruitment panels and that kind of thing. So I do have a certain level of training, understanding of conscious and unconscious bias. But certainly for some people, it could be a real aha moment and um, and something that they're just like, oh, wow, I really need to do something about this. So there are a couple of really great things that can help with that. So Harvard actually have a test um, and they've got a bunch of, of ones that you can sort of test yourself about unconscious biases. And uh, one of those is um, the gender career IAT, it's called. So if you if anyone's interested, they can head over to harvard.edu and, um, and select a test. Um, and if you look at that, it, it kind of just you fill out a number of questions and if you do it as honestly as you can, it'll come out and tell you, oh, well, you've got a, you know, a weak or a strong or whatever unconscious bias. So I believe the key to bias is, you know, you can't control what you don't know. So that's that's one of the first steps. And then there's a lot of things that we can do to assist and um, and tools that we've we've gotten out of um, that course that really assist us to make some real change in our um, organisations. Yeah, that would be um, a really helpful tool, I think, for a lot of people. And on this issue, I've always thought that. It's quite possible that it's considered to be a male-only issue in, in terms of the unconscious bias or conscious bias is coming from men towards women. However, I, I actually think that there's quite a good possibility that there's a lot of that same bias coming from women towards other women and possibly even towards men. Like I know myself that um, I guess some when we've been working in a certain um, area you know, of the business or within a certain industry such as construction, we do develop these biases which we then sort of play back on ourselves, um, if, the, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, Chanel. Like, I've, like I said, I've sat on many recruitment panels and um, probably some of the worst unconscious bias I've seen um, have been women with other women candidates um, for some reason. Um, and, you know, it, it just goes to show that unconscious bias can affect everyone. It doesn't, it's not just, you know, it's not gender based and it's not, you know, it can be racial. It can be, you know, anything you can think of, you can have a bias. So it's really just about understanding that to manage it. So, and look, some of the interesting things that came out of this course is um, things you take for granted like language. So there are a number of words um, that apparently, you know, scientifically proven to turn, um, you know, female candidates off, say, a job advertisement or a role description. So one of the first things we did was go in and you know, look at all their job advertisements and all their role descriptions and rip those words out of them and change them for something else. Yeah, sure. Do <laughs> um, you remember what any of them are? That's really quite interesting. Look, interestingly enough, words like expert or specialist. Ah. Um, so like, and look, that some of those are just a, a couple of throwaways and I'll, I certainly can try and get you um, more information on, on a greater deal of them. And to a worrying extent, leader was one of them as really? well. So, but what we found is that's the only one that's really hard to change and like it is part of the job. So um, my challenge out there to all the uh, female candidates and, and wannabe leaders is 
just go for it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that was one of the few that we couldn't change, but a lot of them, it was really easy to change them out for something else that was, um, you know, not the same word, but would end up getting us a greater pool of, you know, applications, which ends up in better chance of selecting a female, um, you know, for the final role uh, as the best person for the role because you, you can't hire them if they're not turning up to interview. Um, yes. Yeah. And I guess that it, uh, those words might preclude people based purely on how they see themselves. Um, so one person might say, oh, you know, to be an expert, you have to have 20 plus years of experience and you have to have, you know, written journal articles and uh, you have to have presented at X number of conferences. And But then somebody else might go, no, no, I'm an expert because I know my stuff and I haven't done all that, but so what? And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily relate to how good they're going to be in that particular role. Um, so I, I find that, yeah, a really interesting thing, which I'm definitely going to look into more. Absolutely. And look, look, stereotypes, um, you know, try and stick away from them, but they exist for a reason. And, um, some stereotypes, there is some, some data behind them and a general stereotype in, um, you know, in interviews and the workplace is that, um, generally men will often take on an opportunity before they feel they're ready. And that's mm. sort of fake it till you make it attitude. Yep. Um, whereas a lot of the female candidates will wait until they feel like they tick every single box to go for an opportunity. And that's something else that I always impart to, to female colleagues. It's like, well, you know, maybe it doesn't matter that you don't think you're ready. How about I think you're ready? So have a crack at it. And what's the worst that could happen? You'll get some really great feedback out of going for a job that you didn't think you're ready for. And you'll know how to you know, move forward to get it. So um, that was that's another takeaway for me. Um, I would love to see more people just just have a crack at something that might be just a little bit out of their comfort zone um, and learn from whatever they get out of it. They might surprise themselves and be the most successful person. For the yes. Role. And if you are somebody out there listening to this and you feel like you might want to maybe learn a bit more about that, um, I actually did a course recently through Beaumont People uh, that focused on that and building your resilience as well as your self-confidence to go for those positions when um, you may not feel like you are the best candidate or you know, possibly as ready as what you'd like to be, um, especially for, from a female point of view. And I found that a really, really great call. So get in, uh, in contact with them if you want to do more about it. So we're going to now have a look at your career, Kurt. Mm-hmm. Throughout your career, you have really focused on coastal environmental management. So you did a master's in coastal planning and management. Then you were working a lot in erosion control on sand dunes. Um, You did some dredging of contaminated sediment as part of a big project, uh, a remediation project that is. So what is it about coastal environments that really appeals uh, and appealed to you to get you into that space? Yeah. um, Look, I think I'm a product of my environment, actually. I've always lived, worked and played um, on you know, the coast, which was traditionally Darawal country. So first on the Georges River in Sydney and now down at Kiama on the south coast. So for me, it all started with play as a young kid, like, you know, being in nature, going walking or mum telling me what sort of plants, you know, botanical names of plants. We live near the mangroves. So, um, oh, look, probably earmuffs for anybody in the EPA or regulatory places, but yeah, building cubby houses in mangroves and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we didn't didn't know any better at the time, I guess, but probably not ideal to be sort of you know, hammering stuff into threatened species. But mm. um, <laughs> but that, that grows that appreciation um, for the environment. But you learn a lot by just being there and watching. So, you know, seeing tides and water move in those estuarine environments 
And then, you know, we'd always holiday down at Kiamas, build these epic sea pools with my um, with my dad. So we'd wait for low tide. We'd dig by hand as deep as we could. And I'm talking like, you know, this is like a metre deep, a couple yeah, of metres right. wide, like big holes just in the swash zone. Um, we'd create a big bummed wall at the front so that, you know, we could stave the tide off as long as we could. And then you'd add the, we'd add these wing walls that as the waves started to come up, they'd literally funnel all the water into this giant hole. And it was a huge amount of fun. But from that young age, through trial and error and play, I really understood how sediment and water moved in the natural environment. And, you know, we'd, you know, play around with these designs. So sometimes it'd be seaweed on the beach and I'd reinforce the, the you know, the bund wall with seaweed so that it had a bit more, uh, you know, could stand up to some wave action a bit better. Um, and probably the best thing I learned out of all of that is eventually it all washes away and goes back to the same. So I think that's helped me um, in my coastal planning and management space. Um, you know, it's always been a passion. So it made sense for me to study and work in that space. I'm, I'm really lucky that I had that clear passion and interest from a young age. I know not everybody knows what they want to do, but I feel like I kind of was just drawn to it. And the hard work paid off and, you know, a bit of luck and I'm in a job that I love. <laughs> that That is awesome. And I definitely agree with you uh, about Kayama being a wonderful place. We used to go there for holidays as well. Um, Almost every weekend for many, many years, we uh, had a, a van at um, East Beach and it was just the best place to go and spend the weekend um, discovering nature, basically unbridled. Um, because back then in, I don't know, what was that, the 80s and 90s, uh, we were just allowed to, you know, roam around and um, go to the beach whenever we wanted, you know, no parents in tow. So it was, it was great. Um, there you so, go. You're probably a couple of compartments over building your own sandcastle. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so what um, has continued to make you passionate about uh, engaging in this industry and doing it as a job? Because so often when you have a passion, uh, you know, when you turn that into a career, you you lose those elements um, that you really you know, loved about it because you have to do it for a job. So how have you managed to make that transition and what keeps you getting out of bed every morning? Yeah, totally understand what you mean. I certainly can't go to the beach and see a bit of bush seedling without picking it out. <laughs> so I'm always on the job, um, but I do love it. Look, for me, it's it's really that environmental legacy. I mean, in the Soil Conservation Service, we've been doing, you know, these sort of environmental works for over 80 years. And that's it's really great to be part of something bigger and feel like you're making a difference. So the whole point of why I get out of bed every morning is to try and make the world a better place than than what it started um, through a few destructive practices. Like I said, we sometimes we just didn't know any better. Now we do, so let's try and fix it. And, and leaving that legacy for my kids and for others so that they can connect with nature like I did when I was younger. And um, it's an amazing feeling to, to be able to create these environmental outcomes for the people of New South Wales, for our clients. Um, now a large part of my job is assisting, coaching or directing others who are working in this space. So, you know, as I get a little bit older and staler, Chanel, the knowledge transfer and seeing others succeed in that environmental space is now my primary driver. Mm. So I really want to help others learn from my mistakes and my successes so they will be better than I am, faster than I got there, and they can continue that environmental legacy, um, whether that be SORCON or through the IECA or, or whatever. <laughs> and your role, uh, I guess it's very unique with the SOILCON in that Throughout your career and probably even now, I guess, you cross over between so many different facets. Like basically you're a consultant, you're a project manager, you're, but you're also 
kind of like a, a superintendent for construction. So what's it like doing a role with so many different hats? Yeah, look, I guess it can be daunting. It can be liberating. It can be all of those things in one day. Um, in one sense, it's great to have such a, a huge amount of freedom in the roles to be able to do it the way you want to do it. Um, but the flip side is you've got to be super self-reliant um, and have that ability to build good teams around you for the jobs. So, you know, these jobs can be so varied and you never know what's coming up next. So, um, you know, we're essentially a, a government contractor. We're not funded by treasury. We make our own money. So, you know, we, we tender out in the public space and, you know, whatever job or whatever problem a client comes to us, we just try and get on and, and fix it. So um, that's why our skilled subcontractors and consultants are also so valuable to our business. So, you know, it, like any job, it's the team you work with that makes it a success. It's always the people. So, um, look, I've, I've really loved it. Um, it certainly is a challenge at times and we you know, but I do think it's a point of difference for our business and it, it really helps us tackle some of those really, some of the risky jobs that probably not everybody would be happy to do, um, that we can really go and make a, a big impact for clients where if they headed out to the market, um, sort of general construction contractors may not have the skill set or may be too risk adverse to take on some of those projects. Mm. And I guess there's a must be a really good training program that everybody goes through because you do have such a diverse set of projects that you that you work with across so many different types of environments. Yeah, and look, I think I think what we do well is that everybody needs to be a little bit of a jack of all trades. Um, and at the end of the day, it is just project management. So that's the one thing that stays the same. Like we do construction portion of it, but whether that's in house or out of house, like the project management theme stays the same. And we're lucky that no matter what gets thrown at us, we tend to have somebody in the business who's done it before or who's an expert at it, or who knows somebody. So that ability to pick up the phone and talk to a colleague who might be in the northern part of the state. So the great example is we're about to embark on this major mine rehab um, of a, a derelict mine, which is going to be a huge project spanning a number of years. And uh, we're really lucky that some of our northern colleagues have paved the way um, with projects like the Yurunga um, Antimony Mine Um rehabilitation. Uh, the team also did a more recent one up at Ottery and uh, we're able to learn a lot out of their learnings. And that's what we do quite well in the business is sort of share that success and, and share those improvements across the business and pick up the phone and get to learn what somebody else had to do a whole project to work out. And we get to start a project with that information under our belt, which is great. <laughs> yeah, with that, that knowledge, definitely. Um, so do you get involved right from that tender stage or quote stage and have input for every component, such as through design and into the construction or remediation? <laughs> Um, look, we can and we do. So it really depends on what the client wants. So sometimes we might be coming in and we're just tendering like anybody else. Um, and so the design is already done by others and we're just tendering to build it. Um, sometimes we'll go in and, and provide an alternative tender where we say, okay, we've looked at the design and we actually have some concerns. We think you could do it cheaper or get a better environmental outcome or whatever by tweaking the design. Um other times we just work in closely with designers like other people like say Royal Hasconing and sort of just try and, you know, we we get the understanding of where they want to head and the safety factors that they've got to build in, but try and sort of get it to a point where we can slightly tweak or review or help with that design to make it more buildable for a better environmental out outcome or a cheaper build or because 
the issue, particularly in the coastal space, is to design some of these massive structures that can stand up to huge swells from the Great Southern Ocean. Um, you've got to have some really, really big masses. Um, and generally, people would prefer to put, you know, natural materials on a beach. But mm, course, you yeah. can only get rock out of a quarry so big, <laughs> and then you're going to have to head to concrete poured handbars or something like that. So that's a great example where, you know, we might say, oh, actually, your rock sizing there is just not attainable from quarries. Like how can we tweak this so that you still get the outcome and you're happy that it will stand up to the storm, but we can actually build it because otherwise there's no point in having a design if it can't be built. <laughs> of course. So tell me about one of your favourite projects. Um, what was the problem and what was the solution to that problem and how did you get there? Yeah, for sure. Look, the one that sticks out for me because it's probably the most technical and the biggest one that I've done to date, but like I said, we're about to embark on a on a really, really big one. But, um, yeah, the Coffs Harbour Slipway Remediation. Um, ah, yes, yes. Yeah, so it's essentially contaminated land rehab work which comprised of both terrestrial and aquatic rehabilitation. So the issue is that back in the day um, we used to like to protect boat hulls from marine growth by putting all sorts of great metals into paint like lead and nickel and zinc and tributyl tin. Um, and that kind of stuff isn't so great for the environment. It can bioaccumulate in organisms. So in particular, um, the tributyl tin was really, really bad for oysters. Um, it, it would affect them quite quickly um, to the point where you wouldn't get oyster growth in some of those environments. They can affect other fish species and to a lesser effect humans. I guess if you're eating those fish, um, you can you can also bioaccumulate that stuff over time. So, you know, once again, those old pra- the practices of old, we know better now, but we've got a problem to fix. So um, it was kind of my job to come up with some sort of way to get all of this material out um, and validate it as a, as a clean site for future use. Um, both in that aquatic and the terrestrial zone. It's a pretty small, compact site, which made it tricky. And then all of that material had to go off to a a registered monocell in a landfill site. So it was challenging in that in that space. We had an East Coast low that punched through there halfway through the project just to make it tricky. So we it uh, took out a fair bit of infrastructure in that particular harbour, which is a it's a working and international harbour, so they've got fishing, fishing fleets in there. Um, people can actually sort of, you know, moor in. They can come over from overseas and into the country that way. So really important tourist destination, high profile, um, looks right at Mutton Bird Island. Um, there's a whole bunch of restaurants and fish and chip joints. And so here, uh, here's all these kids on holidays or on a school excursion eating their lunch next to me in this um this cordoned off area where we're all in suits and <laughs> um, <laughs> and masks and all this sort of stuff. And look, the, the thing is with workers, it is that really interesting thing. Everybody inside, because they're working there day to day, you know, that was an extra precaution to be in the full moon suit. But they're just over the fence, people having hot chips. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a good, good communication piece there. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> so what I would say is staging equipment and techniques were so critical to that. Um, and so it was a great example of where we've walked into, you know, somebody's coming up with a bit of a plan. Um, you know, there's a remediation action plan in place or a draft one anyway. And we sort of really turned the methodology on its head in a big way. So originally the intent was to do the whole thing by a long reach excavator, which would have created a huge amount of sedimentation, as you can imagine, if you're digging underwater and trying to pull up sediment that's basically a big bowl of slop, then you'd have to flick it into a 
a truck somewhere. Like mm. you can just imagine the chance of these contaminated materials just going everywhere. How deep did you have to go with that excavation? Yeah, so I guess the the seabed sort of maxed out and there was you know different parts obviously like anything but we maxed out at about six meters um and one of the constraints of that job was to have a a sediment curtain that actually dropped that whole six meters so it's it's really tricky because it's not what sediment curtains are designed to do they're designed to deflect sediment whereas these sediment curtains were and i had to have two of them were almost acting more like a coffer dam (laughs) Uh (laughs) so there wasn't a lot of water moving to and fro which created its its own dramas which i may tell you about later but yeah where we headed to was to to get a dredge involved so the thinking behind that was number one we could get to more of the contaminated terrestrial sediments so one of the worst hotspots that was noted was going to be missed because it was outside of the reach of the excavator, whereas the dredge could get it. Also, everything could be pumped in line to dewatering bags, which were sealed. So basically, we're, we're taking that sediment out of that aquatic environment where it's relatively locked up, like it's not great for marine life, but it's not a hazard to humans. Once we get it onto land, it's still constrained in one of those bags while it dewaters. And then you could literally rip open the bags and load out the trucks and then it was gone. So it really limited that vector of people being exposed to anything, um, which was a fantastic way to do it. And um, we had an inline, you know, inline cationic polymer to flocculate um, as well, which really helped with that process. So a lot of technical stuff that's really interesting. Um, I think, yeah, I won't go into too much detail with it, but uh, yeah, that's that's what made it sort of challenging and interesting and, and I learned so much out of it. So with the contaminants themselves, so they, they were included in the paints that were put on the hulls of boats back from what, back to what, the 60s earlier? Are we, do you know sort of what time frame we're looking at for that? Um, oh, look, relatively... Yeah, relatively recently. Like I think oh, they okay. were still putting lead in paint probably up until the early 80s probably. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd, you'd, you'd have to check me on that one. Um, but it was just a, a long term. That's just how it was always done. And slipways in general, I mean, that design is people are moving away from slipways. So part of that project, which I neglected to tell you, was we're actually demolishing the slipway. Uh-huh. Like for anyone who doesn't understand what a slipway is, it's basically like an underwater ramp with um, some rails on it um, and a cradle for the boat. So you'd kind of drive the boat up towards this ramp. So the cradle would be sitting down in the water. You could lock the boat onto the cradle and then the cradle could be winched up onto the land. Um, So the issue of all these sites is the slipway is essentially the low point generally. And if anything overflows or any paint goes into the water or whatever, it all goes, it's basically a point source. It just comes off straight at that slipway. And then once it's in the environment, the tides and everything else move it around and settle it. (laughs) Oh, so, okay. So we're not talking about paint that was already on the hull. We're actually talking about the process um, of, of, I guess, blasting and then repainting these hulls and spills going Yes. Into the yeah, yeah, area. absolutely. Ah. So, um, yeah, it's all about that maintenance. So, you know, those those paints are effective for a while, and you still get marine growth. So, every now and then, they basically blast it all off and repaint it at some point, hopefully with a with a better, less toxic paint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they even, yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's an interesting process. And they, there were setups more recently to try and capture all that. So there were pumping systems and all that sort of thing. Um, but sometimes they fail or are overloaded or whatever. And when they do, 
the same thing occurs. So, um, yeah, it's really moving away from those. Um, and now a lot of these, you know, slipways are something that is not really supported as much on, on bigger working marinas. They've usually got sort of what they would call a travel dock. So it's a bit of an inverse option where um, the big cradle is kind of above and it rolls out, the boat comes in underneath, and then it's sort of pulled out of the water by going up rather than be, yeah. Mm. And the contaminants, um, were they effectively locked into the sediment um, or were they actually easily able to be mobilised into the water column um, to reduce a little bit of disturbance? Yeah, look, to different degrees, I guess. So the the fortunate thing is with metals is they tend to lock up to to find particulate matters and silts and that kind of thing. So, yeah, to a certain degree, there were like flecks of paint, which you're like, oh, yeah, that's like the really bad stuff. But it does does mobilise and sort of become soluble to a degree as well. So that's why we're getting rid of so much sediment because some of this paint was locked up in that sediment, but also the sediment itself um, had some of the metals bound to it. Okay. So are there any specific types of um, products or techniques that work best uh, for erosion sediment control, not necessarily only about um, this project, the slipway remediation, but um, just in general? So are there any good products or techniques for a coastal environment? Oh, look, absolutely. And I guess it's hard because they always always change project to project. And I, I personally love the natural solutions where you can do them so if you take um, action early enough often you can get a really great solution naturally and as a sea pest I'd be um, you know not doing myself a service if I didn't mention that uh, you know vegetation just uh, like everywhere else vegetation on the coast is the best way (laughs) to (laughs) naturally stop minimize erosion and 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 help out Um, but you know we do have real serious issues where there's sediment budget deficits where, you know, doesn't matter how much vegetation you put on certain beaches, they are still going to recede. Mm. So big shout out to sort of natural, more soft techniques first up. Um, we've had some real success with those down at the um, Cronulla and Green Hills sand dunes over 40 years. So there's a, a good little video on our internet site that you could check out if you're interested. And, you know, as you probably see from a number of our other videos, there is a lot of hard infrastructure as well so our teams have used things like um, geo bags so you know using geotextile bags they're basically giant sandbags um, which you can fill with sand and, and sort of stack we've used uh, rock bags um, which are sort of been you know taken on a bit more recently by a number of councils to um, to assist with uh, those dewatering bags that I mentioned were really really helpful you know for Sediment curtains, for instance, I guess my advice with those is whenever you go to the coastal zone, go heavy duty. Um, Mm. The swell and wind and tide absolutely has a massive effect and, um, you know, the silt can build up on the bottom of them and you're going to have to try and lift it up. And, yeah, Uh, look, tackifiers are great. Um, We used a lot of uh, tackifiers on the COFS project, so um, a product called Stonewall um, from Vital Chemical, which... That was was a really great thing to say on that terrestrial site. Okay, we know no dust is going to be coming off this with potential, you know, metals in it. We know no extra stuff's going to be able to go into the water. So that focus on erosion control in coastal is really, really important because you've got limited opportunity for sediment control. Um, you know, sediment booms work to a point, but the reality is once it's in there, it's already in the ocean and you've got to take the sediment boom out at some point. 
and it can all remobilize after the job. So erosion mm. control is critical. And I guess also you've got the wave action to consider. So it's just, it probably wouldn't be practical in a lot of situations to have a, a sediment boom in place. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not, um, but you still have to try and do it to the best of your ability or work with a regulator to, to find a better way or, you know, a plan that they're happy with. The fortunate thing is with a lot of these that um, the, the sediment that you're trying to keep out, if you're using natural products, like it's what, what's the worst that can happen if you've had to cut some sand out and the sand ends up on the beach? Well, that's supposed to be there, but mm-hmm. it's more these these foreign objects. So, you know, a lot of the time we do favour sandstone rock in sandstone environments because, once again, if anything comes off it, it's it's the same material, really. Um, so it's more about being careful about, you know, chemical or fuel or oil or diesel spills when you're working in those zones, the stuff that's really hard to clean up once it's in. Um, yeah, that's, that's where you want to be really careful. So I guess that leads me to... My next question I was going to ask you, which is when you're designing um, an erosion sediment control plan and, and the, the designs that go along with it for a coastal project, what types of design complexities or um, product suitability issues do you need to consider in a different way to say, maybe, I don't know, the fire trail management projects that you do? Yep. Oh, look, where to start? I guess um, the most important thing is fire trails don't move around while you're working on them. <laughs> so, um, you know, some of my colleagues, um, not not to take anything away because some of those are in really, really tricky to get to situations and logistics, but certainly I think the coastal zone is one of the hardest places to work in. You've got tide and sediment movement, and that's not to mention then storm swell and, you know, east coast lows, like I said, you can have huge waves coming in. And a lot of the time, these emergency sort of works do happen during an east coast low. So um, the, the great example of Coleroy, if, well, there was a beach there yesterday and now somebody's pool is falling into the ocean, um, mm. we need you guys to go down there and fix it. So you're sort of mobilising. Sometimes some of these teams are mobilising in the middle of the night and setting up day, you know, day makers and, and really trying to work in and around these huge storm swells coming in, but do that safely. So sometimes it's a full-on job just keeping water out of the site, you know, 24-hour pumping operations or just having an excavator literally that's just keeping a bund wall around the site and repairing it. So it is it is really, really tricky. Um, and, yeah, considering sort of the catchments and, and what you can and, and can't work with in those spaces. So that coughs example, I guess there was drainage, um, like stormwater drainage that entered part of the sites too. And I had to make that decision of, okay, well, do I try and keep that stormwater drainage separate and keep it as clean water or do I treat it as part of the site? And when I looked at the catchment for the stormwater, it, you know, it came around the front of my site. We had trucks coming and going. There was a, you know, a potential for small amounts of sediment risk. So I'm like, well, actually I'll, I'll take that into the site. So um, I set up the booms specifically with having that stormwater outlet internally mm-hmm. with the idea that worst case scenario, if any of the you know tracking or anything like that would end up in the site and be treated, which is, you know, I thought a, a great outcome um, and added some value. Yeah, definitely thinking laterally um, about, I, I guess, considering the risks associated 
um, risk-based approach is such a big part of um, contaminated land projects, which perfect example right there. So I've been doing a lot of traveling up and down the East Coast for, for our project work in recent months. And I've definitely noticed um, a lot of change to a lot of beaches um, from the South Coast all the way up to uh, Byron Bay. Um, there's you know a lot of sediment movement. There's a lot of dunes that have just disappeared. And do you think that this is, uh, I guess, related to extreme weather events that might be linked to climate change, especially with you know, climate change being at the forefront of people's minds after the recent drought and floods. What changes are you seeing from a coastal perspective? Yeah, well, climate change is a really interesting thing on the coast because it's such a dynamic environment that generally, if it's in a natural state, it will sort itself out. Like there will be things that are inundated for sure, but um, climate change is happening on on you know an increasingly fast scale, but still a scale that I think a lot of coastal areas like beaches can cope with. What we find a lot of the problems are is that you know, they're not environmental problems, they're human problems. We've we've built something too close to the beach and we don't want to move it. Mm. <laughs> so we've yeah, got to come yeah. up with some way to to leave that there and and work around it. So yeah, we've we've also been in a 30 to 40 year low of coastal storm sort of, you know, intensity and frequency. So a lot of people are stuck with what they know or what they remember. And what mm. we're seeing at the moment is actually a bit more of a shift to historical normals, I would say. Um, but it's going to catch a lot of people unaware because you just, oh, yeah, no, that's right. We didn't have any too, you know, that all of a sudden an East Coast low comes. It's like, oh, wow, where's the beach gone? This is a problem. And um, that understanding of of sand and sediment, and like I said before, every, every case is different, right? So there are some beaches where the sediment budget is in deficit and there's actual retreat of that beach, long-term retreat. But for the most part, there's a lot of compartments, what we would call, on, on the east coast of Australia, and the budget is relatively stable in those. A lot of sediment is always leaking in by what we call longshore drift, which you know goes from generally southern to northern because mm-hmm. of sort of ocean, big southerly swells and winds and that kind of thing. So a little bit's always leaking in at the southern end of the beach and a little bit's always leaking out at the northern end, but generally the budget's stable. What people don't understand is that link between the beach and the near shore and sort of underwater areas that when they see that big dune scarp disappear, it's not gone from the system. It goes out and creates a sandbar, which in turn stops the wave action hitting with as much you know power as mm-hmm. it was as close to the beach. And then over time in normal conditions and that all that sediment works its way back in, eventually is blown back up onto the beach, rebuilds the dunes, and the cycle starts again. Problem is, there's nothing to stop you having two major events at high tides back-to-back, which is where you get really catastrophic issues. And like I said, that infrastructure is sometimes built too close. I, I see it as our job to kind of really help nature up a little bit by trying to assist that regeneration, whether it's assisting with getting that sand back up onto the beach or revegetating it, keeping good vegetation communities, that kind of thing. Mm. So a question... I guess of interest to me is when you're dealing with these coastal environments, do you find that our standard industry, you know, Bibles that we use, the Blue Book and the BPESC are still applicable or do you need to adapt the, I guess, the concepts from those to to fit your scenarios? Yeah. Um, look, I think Blue Book and best practice. And so for coastal management, a lot of that's in the coastal tune management manual. The problem with both of them is they're getting old. 
Um, they, they do need a revamp. Legislation changes. Um, things change. But I think one of the biggest problems is these sort of environmental issues. They don't like to stop at the local LGA boundary or the <laughs> you know local government, state government boundary. Um, they just do their thing. So what I would really love to see is better alignment on best practice across states and and legislation because I think we'd get really far better outcomes um, in those spaces. It's certainly the way. It it's, it's intended to be through coastal zone management planning. You've got LGAs working together, not just sort of being like, oh, I'm just going to fix the coastal erosion to there. And then, you know, that's your problem because you're mm. the different different council. So yeah, like a great example of this is currently Queensland undertake huge dune nourishment programs through offshore dredging. So places, um, think of uh, surface paradise up there. A lot of people wouldn't realise, but there's about halfway down the middle of the road, that front strip on, on surface paradise, there's a a rock revetment under there called the A-line. And that was the area of retreat in some of those big storms of where it got to, which is probably only about you know, 10 to 20 metres away from the base of some skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah, right. okay. um, And so it's really important that they keep renourishing those dunes and, and make sure that that natural barrier is there, not only for, you know, for all the people who live there, but that, that tourist, I mean, you know, I don't know if as many people would go to the Gold Coast if they didn't have sandy beaches and it was all just rock left. But in New South Wales, we can't do that. So the legislation in New South Wales that the dredging only really happens in navigable channels for boat you know, navigability. And if it so happens that there's a dune nearby that can be re-nourished, that's great. But we can't undertake re-nourishment purely for a coastal protection sort of um, thing at present with the legislation. So yeah, really, really interesting. It just limits that toolkit a little bit on some of those beaches. So like I said, Collaroy that does have retreat or somewhere like up at Byron, we've got Belongel, um, places like that, that the solution is is not going to be to build a wall or, or whatever. It's going to be a huge amount of dollars, like it would be probably a far better solution to, to re-nourish, which still costs a lot, but a more natural approach that doesn't limit access for others. Yeah, definitely definitely sounds like there needs to be some talking going on along with the whole coastline. Oh, yeah. And look, I, yeah, absolutely. There, there are so many different levels of expertise in this space too. And, and like I said, they are really, really tricky problems to solve and there's there's no easy way out. Like um, probably one of the, the most reasonable, but certainly the, the least uh, likely and least well-received is coastal retreat. It's like, let's, you know, if we were to build today, we probably wouldn't build something here why don't we we buy it out and, and and move back but as you can imagine people have lived their life or, or bought their dream house um you know don't really want to do that so i really feel for the people on the coast who have these problems and it's not their fault and it's yeah not, that's a whole other conversation either. around planning um, isn't it <laughs> yeah but, but whose fault is it and somebody needs to be held accountable and there's no clear winners or losers or anything with that it's it's just such a a wicked problem, I guess you would call it. <laughs> hmm. So if you had one piece of advice uh, to offer to a new coastal erosion control officer or a new soil conservation person, maybe a graduate who has come to work in the coastal zone, what would it be? Um, oh, it's a good one. Uh, look, I think have a plan, stick to the plan and be consistent in your approach. So for me, being consistent doesn't mean that you can't experiment or you can't improve, but just keeping in mind that coastal space is so dynamic. So sometimes you might undertake a fantastic project and by bad luck, a coastal event happens and you lose half of it or all of mm -hmm. it. It doesn't necessarily mean it failed. <laughs> Other times you could do that same project and it might last a lifetime 
once, you know, it's sort of bedded down or, you know, the sediment starts to accrete or whatever. So it's kind of the nature of the beast of working in those environments that probably the job is never done and there's never a perfect solution. And you can put something in it work fantastic and you can do a similar thing in a similar environment and just might not work. <laughs> I love that. I do. Lo- I love that advice. I think it actually ties really well into what I did see along the northern part of the of Byron Bay's, I think it was the main beach actually. Oh, no, it wasn't. Sorry, it was the one further around from that. But um, there was, I think they're, they're called geo bags, the, the yep. really big white ones with um, some geofab wrapped all the way around them. It looked like it had been, you know, a pretty big project and had worked really, really well. But same thing, uh, it was starting to... Uh, I guess you're starting to fail um, probably because of some huge storms that had come through. But as you just said, it doesn't mean that it was a failure. And it, it was a really interesting, I guess, case study for me to look at that and go, yeah, wow, okay, um, this is working, it's slowly failing, but doesn't mean it was a failure. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I guess everything's got limitations and everything's a tool, right? So when you, whenever you put something hard in these environments, the edge effects are, are worse because, you know, you put in a hard rock wall, all that wave reflection and energy hits that hard thing, deflects around it and immediately tries to cut out behind or, you know, it hits a neighbor's property or whatever. Um, so we do have to be careful with some of these things because, yeah, it might solve your problem, but then you've just moved the problem down the beach and you can't, yeah. you know, rock revet the whole of the Australian coast. You can't geobag the whole of the Australian case. So it's got to stop and start somewhere. And look, those environments, and it is really hard. Like there is no simple fix, like I said before. it's Everyone's got ideas and we're still playing and experimenting in that space and technology is getting better. Um, yeah. Yeah. Learning as you go. Now you held the position of director on the board of the International Erosion Control Association or IECA, Australasia, for a period of six years. Um, yeah. What types of progress are you most proud of helping IECA achieve in your time? Look, for me, it really is trying to support and engage young professionals. Um, and I'm, you know, funnily enough, I'm lucky to be one of the one of those young professionals that, that was sort of a benefactor of, of a program and a bit of a, a real positive start to my career, I guess, in in getting that wider network of colleagues um, and meeting new people. Because when you're starting out, you don't have a lot of you know, cash behind you to be able to fly off to a, an international event or spend you know, a few grand on getting to and from and accommodation at a conference. Like it just wasn't in, it wasn't an opportunity. Mm. Um, but when you can sort of you know, get a scholarship or something like that and attend those things at such a pivotal point in your career where you're, you're just taking off. And like I said before, I sort of got so much out of learning from others and seeing what they've learned in some of these people's careers might have been 50 years in the, in the field. And I've learned what they've learned in 50 years in a day because I've been, been able to get there. So on the board, I really wanted to keep that going and, and try and, and get more people through the door. So I think that's what I was, was quite proud with, just trying to change that up ever so slightly. So very similar outcomes, but um, having a bit of overlap with those young professionals too. So they build a bit more of a young professional network, learning from somebody else. They've got somebody to talk to. You know, it can be daunting to turn up to a conference where you're thinking, oh, who am I? And there's this whole room of epic people who know all this stuff and <laughs> don't belong here. So um, yeah, I think that's been really great. And look, the other thing is is really trying to define what the IECA does and is because it's made up of some fantastic people. And uh, as, you, as you're well aware, it's a volunteer role, you know, 
Um, so it's one of those things everyone can be meaning well, but trying to get a bit more strategy in, well, who are we? What do we do? Why are we doing it? And and driving in that way. So we, we had some really good conversations about that. And unfortunately, COVID came in and sort of put a bit of a hold on everything for a while. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing ICA ramping back up in those spaces and providing workshops and having conferences and yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. We're definitely uh, a good good conference coming up at the end of this year in Coffs Harbour. Everyone should get along to it. I'm sure I'm well aware. I recently um, took on the role of president for uh, IECA Australasia. So do you have any tips for me? Oh, no, Chanel, just keep doing what you're doing. So I, I am aware and I was like, you know, I think I I think I might have actually dumped you in it, didn't I? Did I put my hand up and nominate I, you and say, oh, I, I think, think Chanel should do it. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So look, I, I have absolute faith in you, Chanel, and, and I just think you'll do such a great job. And once again, like, you know, coming back to maybe a really good circle back to where we started on, on the gender parity thing, like really proud of the director's sort of board there and the membership that we did have pretty good representation from a lot of fantastic um, females on the board, such as yourself and Janine Koppel. But what we hadn't seen probably was a female president until now. And I think that's a really great, great step. And I'm really keen to see your ideas and your leadership of, you know, of the board there, hopefully take us to sort of some new spaces in the environmental industries that we work in. Yeah, and it's a very exciting time uh, because not just a female president, but we've also got a female um, vice president with um, Kirsty Dykes being being nominated, well, uh, taking on the role of VP, which I well, it's the first for the association and it's very exciting. Absolutely. Um, so. And another plug to the Young Professionals, right? So Kirsty yes. came through the Young Professionals program. Um, she sure did. And thank you to the sponsors of that program. Yes, yes. No, I, I do think it's, um, yeah, got to, got to put a big thanks out to um, to Vital Chemical who sponsor that. Um, they do a wonderful job and and it's a long-term commitment. You know, they've been doing it for a long time and, uh, yeah, I, it, it all adds up, doesn't it? Like, you know, would Kirsty be in a position to put a hand up to be a VP without that opportunity previously um or would she have you know the courage or the push to to do it um you know no only she can probably say but uh yeah i just think it's a fantastic outcome i'm so excited to see it see what you guys do well thank you so much for your time kurt it has been uh, a real pleasure to talk to you today and I would like to um, to let everybody know that there will be links in the show notes for the soil conservation um, website uh, and socials, as well as some other links um, around gender parity. So that wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time. Keep thinking green.